Lights up on a park bench. Lights up on a deck. Lights up. Lights up. Lights up. Lights up. Lights up. Lights up. A podcast by the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga. My name is Marsha Parks. I'm from East Ridge, Tennessee, and I play Jenny. Hi, I'm Scott Harrison, and today I am playing Jerry in Survival Strategy. Lights up on an office. Jerry enters. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. Has it come to that? Your smiling face is a good Monday pick-me-up. Your smiling face. Jenny smiles. That's better. Jerry picks up Jenny's page-a-day Jeopardy calendar. This week's Jeopardy category is holidays. It's not as easy as it sounds. On Valentine's Day, this group gets more cards than any other. Who are teachers? Jerry checks the back of the page. Mm-hmm. How did you know that? They get one from everybody in the class. That's a lot of hearts. Jenny makes a hash mark on a notepad and counts. You're too smart for me. You're already 11 ahead. It's only February. You have loads of time to catch up. I said wives. <laughs> Stupid. No, because that's the way it should be. Your logic made perfect sense. I should have thought of that. Did you get Kara a Valentine's Day card? Of course. Didn't Bob buy one for you? <laughs> of course he did. And? And some candy. What kind? M&M's. Not just any M&M's. No, the pink, red, and white ones. But that's not all. You know it's not. Why do you make me do this? It amuses me. You're a sadist. Humor me. And then I say, oh, wow, I had no idea they made M&Ms in colors, especially for Valentine's Day. Even though you do. Yes, I do. As well as dark mint, almond, pretzel, candy corn, and birthday cake. But I think Bob rediscovers them every year. So then? So then Bob says, I know, right? But you don't think I'd forget your favorite candy, do you? This is my favorite part. You're sick. And then he pulls out a box of peanut clusters, which are not and have never been my favorite candy. But I say thank you and give him a kiss and we, you know. Right in the kitchen. Oh, yeah. It was great. And then Bob says, happy Valentine's Day, honey. We still got it. Oh, Bob. Bob, Bob, Bob. Are you happy now? No. Then why? There's always a chance the story won't end that way. Like Bob suddenly said, hey, Jenny, why don't we snuggle up on the couch and watch the notebook? You could suggest that. Be proactive. You know how that goes. He's too hot. He's too confined. His arm falls asleep. What's the point? I just thought it was Valentine's Day. You never know. No. Oh, did, did something happen at your house? 
no, no. I gave Kara a card and flowers and we went to dinner. It was nice. But? But when we went to bed, she said, happy Valentine's Day. Tell me what you want, tag Jerry. And I said, it was such a nice night. I just wanted to fall asleep together. What a beautiful invitation. And she said, in that case, she was kind of tired and she rolled away. I'm sorry, Jerry. I just wanted a cuddle. Just a hug. Some tenderness. A lingering touch. We haven't hugged in two years. Is that so wrong? You know, I don't think so. So, you know, I just wanted to know if anything was different, just in case it was. I mean, I'd be happy for you. Really happy. I love my husband very much. I love Kara too. Very much. But... I just... Could I... Maybe it would be all right if I... You look like you could use a hug. Oh, Jenny. I could really use a hug. Jenny hugs Jerry at first tentatively, but then desperately. And it would seem it is going to go further, but it doesn't. It's just a desperate hug. No groping, no near kiss, nothing. They just stay desperately entwined. Oh, Jerry. Oh, Jenny. It's been so long since I've done anything like that. Too long. Why didn't we think of this before? I don't know. There's nothing wrong with this. It's just a hug. Jenny and Jerry hug more tightly. Two friends hugging. Hug buddies. Right. Because everybody needs hugs. I read yesterday that we need four hugs a day just for survival. It is. It's a matter of survival. And eight hugs a day for growth. Survival is probably good enough. You know, for now. It's okay then if we help each other survive? Nobody could object to that. I mean, Bob wouldn't want me to die. No! And Kara would never want to find me shriveled up on the floor dead from a lack of hugs. Oh, that's an awful image. And oh, she or Bob would never even know it was their fault. Gary pulls back from the hug and looks Jenny in the eye. We can't let that happen. No, we mustn't let them feel any guilt. It's in their best interests. Jerry pulls Jenny into a hug again. Jenny gets teary. What's wrong? It's just... I haven't had any non-sexual affection in so long without begging for it. I understand. And for the record, this is not sexual. No, if it were, I couldn't do it. We're not groping or kissing. Or even wanting to. No, not at all. We need to make that clear. It's very clear. Jenny and Jerry hug again. (sighs) So. Yes. Do you think, I mean, would it be okay if we met a couple times a day just to hug? I don't know. It doesn't have to be four, you know, it could just be two. Even that's gotta help, you know, with the 
Jerry Mimes shriveling up and dying. What could be the harm in that? I don't see a downside. If I'm not as needy at home, it can only make my marriage stronger. I never thought of it that way. Bob, you're off the hook. <laughs> okay, then. How about if I pop in right before five, give you a little hug to send you on your way home? A little boost. This is going to help all four of us. We're geniuses. All righty, then. I'll see you later. Jerry turns to exit, turns back, gives her a quick hug. Oh, I almost forgot. Jerry produces a small package. Your favorite candy. Raisin clusters. Of course. Jerry exits. Jenny opens the box and eats a candy. Lights fade. Hey, everybody. It's Gary, the producer for Lights Up, Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga's new podcast for playwrights, performers, and patrons of theater. I wanted to see if you've heard about Anchor. Anchor, the platform that's hosting our podcast. If you haven't heard about Anchor yet, well, I am happy to be the first to tell you about it. It is free. F-R-E-E. That's right, free. Um, There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your computer uh, or your phone. And Anchor will distribute the podcast that you create so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts from. And you know what else? It doesn't cost you anything, but you can make money from your podcast, and you don't even have to have a minimum listenership. That's right. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So do like we did. Download the free Anchor app. Or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R, or anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M, to get started and create your podcast. Hello, and welcome back to season two of Lights Up. I'm Dana Cole Giovanni, one of your hosts, joined by my co-host... I'm Christy Gallo. I am one of the producing partners with the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga. And we are super excited to kick off season two and welcome Donna Hoke as our first guest. Um, She wrote a really fun piece that we're going to be speaking about called Survival Strategy. So welcome, Donna, to the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. So um, I know that we all got to listen to an audio reading of this as, you know, as our audience has gotten to listen to that as well. Um, so Donna, give us a little bit of background on this piece. When did you write it and was what, what inspired it? Oh, I don't know exactly what year I wrote it, um, but I do know what inspired it. It was a, um, a piece in an advice column where somebody wrote in like about this type of situation, like, you know, I'm just meeting my office mate for hugs. Like, is that okay? (laughs) And I was like, well, I think it, you know, it's an interesting question. So I kind of went from there. It is a very interesting question. It sparks a lot of, um, when, when I read it, and then of course, when I re-listened or listened to it, I 
the the quote by Thoreau came to mind of quiet desperation where you I felt like I was just like witnessing these two people that are like withering on the vine in their own way in their own quiet way and um so I, to me it was just so so fascinating to see how these two characters were handling it became them. to me like a difference between sex and intimacy like um which I think people can confuse a lot. And interestingly, like right now in the time that we are in, um, this place seems to be resonating with people a little bit more. Yeah, that was one thing that really struck me. I, I definitely wanted to know when you had written this and clearly it was pre-pandemic, yeah. even if you yeah. don't have the exact year um, and just how relevant it is now to be craving touch and also what a different spin this can take now. Um, because I think pre-pandemic, I would have only heard this um, and had a lot of questions in mind um, of like, what is an emotional affair? What is emotional intimacy? What is sexual? You know, I personally am someone who has experienced, you know, being cheated on and, and from an emotional affair. So I had all these like filters of questions when I was listening as just an audience member and now being in still in the pandemic, but we're actually like, you know, with vaccines and things, we're able to be out and interacting more. I was like, oh, this takes on a whole new shade of gray. So I thought it was really interesting how, you know, this piece I'm sure can have a whole perspective shift just by world events. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure you noticed um, in the notes that I had put, like there is zero sexual energy in this hug because the tendency for like the first couple of productions was just to go completely in that direction as, as if it were something else, like, like people not being able to separate the two. And I just like felt like I needed to really <laughs> like make it clear, even in the, in the stage notes that, that it is not that. Yeah. You know, one of the, one of the aspects I really enjoyed is I felt like they were two, like your, like your characters were two people who really wanted to feel seen. You know, particularly, I loved the little detail about the favorite candy. You know, here's the coworker who knows the favorite candy and the spouse who just, just for whatever reason is not. And just that feeling of, of just being seen and yeah. how important that really is to all of us. So the history of this piece, cause it's been produced a few times. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Um, it's been produced a bunch of times. Um, yeah, and I don't know what specifically you want to know. It, it has been produced a lot. Um, I actually have a version that I sometimes send out where I say that can be any genders. And I know in Ireland, they did it with two women. Um, I, I would like to see, I have never seen that. I would kind of like to, because I would like to know how that changes people's perceptions about the sexuality of it because I feel like for, for a lot of people, they can't help but read that in, read into it, no matter what. Um, whereas I feel like the, it's funnier, the, the less it's sexual, the funnier it becomes, but maybe it's just because we have those expectations, I don't know. That's so cool that this has been produced internationally. That's really awesome. I think it's been done in Australia as well. It's one of my more produced 10 minute plays for sure. And um, talking about your your work so you have sound you've written multiple 10 minute plays is that your favorite type of thing to write what what's your um what's your breadth as far as uh your writing style goes and types of plays um i have them kind of at all time points i don't have a 30 minute i have a couple 60 minutes which are actually older plays that i just overwrote when i was a newer playwright and i cut them down so now they're one acts 
Um, I, I haven't written a new 10 minute play except as a commission in probably three years. I really have gotten a lot busier with full length plays and I think um, they're more satisfying to me. I think 10 minute plays are super, super important to write early on because you get so much more acceptance because you're not competing against anybody well-known. You're just competing against your peers. So they're a good litmus test for how you're doing because if they're not getting accepted, it's like, okay, what's going on here? Um, but I, I find full length plays, um, just I like to dig in a little deeper and I've actually turned a couple of my 10 minute plays into full length plays, um, ones that had you know, some depth to do that. I think that's really interesting to hear. We've spoken to a bunch of playwrights obviously through last season. Um, and, you know, we're, we're doing this whole podcast to highlight playwrights. And we haven't heard much about the importance of finding your footing through 10 minute plays. So any aspiring or currently, you know, playwrights who are still trying to break in, I think that's a really great piece of advice is like, figure yourself out through these 10 minute plays. That's, that's something I haven't heard before. And I think really helpful. So that's I have a whole blog post about if you're not writing 10 minute plays, why you should be. Um, and for some of those reasons, like the competition is far less, you get much quicker feedback, it's much easier to get them produced. So you get to meet theater people and directors and actors, and you kind of get to understand what it feels like to be produced. Um, you get to do this kind of stuff. Um, it's very hard to get a full length play produced, really hard. Um, so you have, you know, it's kind of some successes to keep you going. Otherwise, it can get really frustrating. I mean, I have a whole list, but I, I feel like you know, for the validation and the successes and, and just the test. And it's a great place to experiment too. Like the two plays that I turned into full length plays were both comedies and I never thought I could write a comedy. So like you experiment in a 10 minute play and it turns out, oh, this is kind of funny. And then the tone is set and you could just kind of expand from there. So what got you started as a playwright? Um, I've always been a writer. I just wasn't a playwright, but I never really found like the creative writing niche that fit me. Like I, I didn't really see myself writing novels. They just seemed so long and like all that detail. And, um, you know, I dabbled in poetry and different things, but then I ended up in journalism and kind of just let it go for a really long time. And then my ex-husband um, was doing some community theater stuff. So I started going to a lot of theater. I had never really gone before that. And um, when we split up and I moved to Buffalo, I got a theater subscription and long story short, they had a workshop and blah, blah, blah. I mean, and like, so I wrote a play and like when I wrote the play, then I was like, oh, like this, this is it. Like all the bells and whistles went off and I finished this very long thing, which I never thought I could have done. Um, but I realized my focus, I'm much happier if I don't have to fill in all those details. Like if it's just the story and the dialogue, and then I'm very happy to collaborate with designers to fill in all the rest of that stuff that would just be prose in a novel. It's so interesting that you mentioned the collaboration too, um, because I think there are a lot of playwrights who may have started in another facet. A lot of them start, you know, acting and kind of want to have, and I'm generalizing here, obviously, but I think we've we've spoken to, it feels like a lot of uh, playwrights who want to have the full picture and have it out. And um, I also think it's so wonderful and so of the theater that you're like, hey, help me fill in this detail about that. Um, can you talk about some of the inspiration you've gotten from, from collaborating with other theater artists in that way? Um, well, like there was this play that I did that was a commission, um, in which the Buffalo Bills win the Super Bowl. <laughs> so I, I hate football, but but I think that made me a better person to write the play because I wasn't trying to be all 
esoteric and bring fan knowledge. It was about the fans, the people. I mean, I know them, I understand them. Um, and so that in particular really needed to be collaborative because I don't really know the world of fandom. Like I, you can tell me, but like the guy who designed the set, like that was a Bill's backers bar, like for sure. And like, I actually had to have somebody help me. Like, like my, my script was a really crazy play happens here, like, or something that almost never happens. Like, but I really had no idea what that means in football terms. So somebody had to help me craft like, you know, an exciting win um, that I totally didn't understand. Like even to the end of the production, I did not understand how they won the game. And what was really funny is that it attracted a lot of people who didn't usually come to theater because of the subject matters. We got a lot of sports fans who dressed to come to the play and, and the moment at which they win and all the actors are kind of like just standing there with their mouths hanging open. Like somebody in the audience who doesn't know theater at all, like literally said they won. Like he really thought they didn't know. Like, <laughs> like, but, this, but they, you know, they were following that whole thing, you know, and even throughout rehearsals, like actors would go, oh, wait, like that doesn't make sense. They don't have that many points there. Like, and that clueless to me. So that was a case where I could not have done that play without help from people who knew that world. And, um, you know, I can create the character in the story, but they needed to fill it in. I love that. That's, that's like the heart of theater. I mean, that's why I know I really enjoy being involved is, is, the collaboration of working with other artists in real time, especially. Um, so I love that. And I love, I, that would be me trying to write a sports play too. <laughs> I wouldn't. Yeah. Try I mean, I understood the dramatic arc, but I had zero idea how to make that happen. <laughs> well, and like speaking of other artists, do you feel like there's any playwrights or, or even actors or directors that you've worked with or that have influenced how you write or your work in general? Um, actors, definitely. Um, like I wrote a comedy in the beginning of the pandemic and I had very, three very specific Buffalo actors in mind for those voices. Um, two women in particular who are both super, super funny, but in very different ways. So I thought the contrast of them together would create something really fun. Is there anything about the, that, the theater world, especially from the perspective of a playwright that you kind of wish you could like wave a wand and fix and... Um, I, I just wish it didn't have to work that way. I mean, um, the playwrights that, that get advanced, you know, 95% come from a very specific pool. You know, there are, there are luck stories that happen, but even if a playwright is lucky enough to, um, like say, get into the O'Neill or, or even get a play on Broadway against all odds. Um, that doesn't, if they are not in that pool of people who are winning all the prizes, the Whiting Prize or, you know, whatever, if they're not in that pool, it almost doesn't even do anything for their career. Like I know a playwright who had a play on Broadway and he's still, you know, doing everything that everybody else is doing. Um, so it's not like there's any special thing, like, oh, if I just get this, you really have to be uh, in the circle of people who are going to advance your work. Um, that, that's really what it comes down to is having people willing to advance your work and invest in it. Yeah, I, th I think that's, that's pretty, you know, similar of most theater artists, you know, an artist, an actor can be in a show and it can do really, really well. And 
And unless they're immediately hired for something else, or you're going through a dry spell again, we've seen that like cyclical, mm-hmm. it's really kind of an ongoing cyclical type of, or, or maybe more of a roller coaster, a mountainous type of career path yeah. with most every artist. Um, how do you feel about um, being a female uh, in this world? Um, do you notice anything um, being a female playwright? Um, do you have any support from other female playwrights? Has it not really affected you at all? Or I don't know how much it's affected me. Um, I mean, I started kind of late. I mean, I had my first production in 2010. Um, so I feel like, you know, the fact that I've had productions every year, I've been produced in a lot of different, all, all small theaters, you know, like no big lore theaters are, are looking at me, you know, and that's, that's part of what I'm talking about. Like, if you look at what lore theaters are producing, you know, it's pretty much all the same people. If they do do a brand new playwright, it might be someone who's local to them that they have brought along. Um, I mean, I don't feel like it's affected me particularly because I'm not in those circles. So like when people talk about, um, you know, only 20% of plays are produced by women. Well, part of the problem with that is if you look at just the new plays being produced, you're gonna see a lot greater parity. Um, if you're looking at everything, it's like, no, you're not, you know, as long as people are still producing the old canon plays, and as long as people are still looking to Broadway for the blockbusters they want to produce, you're still going to see a lot of men because men is, you know, Broadway's dominated by men because it's the old school money and, and Broadway is for profit, you know, so basically Broadway is just self-production at a very high level, um, and it's for profit, and it's all these men who have most of the money. That's starting to change, um, but I, I feel like that's why Broadway is so male dominated and that's what filters down to the regions. So that number is really not gonna move too much um, until we start getting rid of that old canon and bringing new things into it. Um, but if you look at the new work sector, it's much more equitable. And so I don't think it's really affected me. Great. Well, I love to hear that. That's amazing. We had a chat last season a little bit about um, you know, the pandemic has obviously turned almost every aspect of, of our lives upside down um, in so many ways. But we, we've talked about how it's really kind of thrown commercial theater off of its foundation. I don't know if it's completely flipped it upside down. That's to be determined. Um, but we talked about that and how perhaps this is the chance for the regions and the smaller theaters to kind of lead the way, as opposed to right now, as you discussed, we have a highly commercialized Broadway theater that is yeah. influencing the topics, the trends, the popularity, um, and kind of controlling what people see in America, right? On on the broad scale. And, and it's getting I- like dumber and dumber, you know? <laughs> like, I mean, I was a Tony voter for three years. Like my, my term ended right right when all this happened. So I missed kind of the back half of my third year, but honestly, most of the stuff I didn't even want to see. Like, you know, I felt like I was missing all the good stuff off Broadway because I had to make trips to New York and see all this Broadway stuff, which I mean, most of it was not stuff I wanted to see. And again, self-production at a very high level. Um, The off-Broadway theaters aren't that so much. They curate a season, you know, they're choosing. Um, so, and, and people just don't, I don't think, realize that. The average theater goer doesn't realize that. They think, oh, you made it to Broadway. Well, like if I had, you know, $20 million, I could make it to Broadway. <laughs> you know, right. that's all it really takes is money. Um, and I don't think people really realize that. 
Yeah. Well, hopefully this is going to change that trend a little bit. I mean, and we are now seeing um, with finally all of Scott Rudin's stuff becoming mainstream public. There's still not enough action, in my opinion, on that. <laughs> um, but uh, finally, maybe getting the idea that these people at the top perhaps need to be dismantled and we need to kind of take the art form back is really hopeful for me (laughs) in a lot of ways. So, um, that being said, what is, um, what is your version of success? What does your dream look like? Are you, it sounds like maybe having a play on Broadway doesn't really define you or I mean, it would be great. I I have no illusions that that will ever happen. I I don't even have illusions that a Lort theater would ever produce me. Um, Just not the way things are now. Um, But I've been fortunate. I mean, I feel so fortunate that, you know, from that first production in 2010, I've had productions every single year. I've had full lengths produced around the world. Um, I've had 10 minutes produced like crazy. and I, I, my, I look at it like um, when there are so many playwrights who don't get productions. I mean, I think Woody and Sullivan said like for every thousand plays that are written, like one gets produced or something like that. So I, I feel really fortunate and I have kind of defined success as if I always have a next project that's happening. Um, I think that's good. That's kind of, and I've kind of tried to move toward, um, you know, trying to set those things up almost ahead of time. Like if I'm going to write this play, like I'll write one on spec and then one for the other guy, like, like a, a publisher had said, you know, we have a hole in our catalog and we need an Anne of Green Gables adaptation. And I was like, I'll do it. And so I wrote it and it was really fun and it's being developed and they're publishing it. And hopefully that, you know, is going to generate some passive income once it gets in the pipeline. Um, so I, I mean, I just love writing. So I'm always happy if something's happening, you know, if there's a next thing coming, then I'm happy. I don't, I haven't had like these really fallow, like, you know, a year where I haven't had a reading or anything. That is ultimate success in my book (laughs) to be a continuing artist. That's um, amazing. Do you have um, a play that you're working on or have recently worked on that you're just like super excited about that you want to like tease at all? Well, Uh, I wrote, um, I wrote three free plays this year. So I wrote the comedy I told you about um, that, that did have one reading already and has another one coming up this third, the 30th of April. So that's not a this anything that's like 12 days from now. Um, and then I wrote a solo show because I really felt like when theater started coming back, people would be really interested in solo shows. And it was one that had kind of had on the back burner. Um, so that had a workshop with Hunter Foster at Red House Theater and um, if you look at any of my emails, the link is there if you wanted to watch it. And I just today, like almost got to the end of a first draft um, on a third play that, because the Dramatist Guild is doing end of play this month. So people are trying to finish a play within the month of April. So I've been really trying hard to get to the end of this draft, which is something that's been sitting on my computer, like, you know, was started like in 2017, the file. and. I think tomorrow I will probably finish a first draft of it. Wow. Congrats. Yeah. <laughs> so, I know it's exciting. I'm, it's exciting just to have it like out of my queue, <laughs> like because it's just been kind of hanging there and I didn't know what to do with it. So, um, Are 
one of our playwrights we interviewed last season, uh, Yusef said that he dedicates a certain amount of time every day to just sit and write. Uh, do you have a schedule like that or is your writing more flexible? How, how does your process work? I don't have a schedule like that, but the past six weeks, um, a friend of mine turned me on to the London Writers Salon and they meet four times a day at 8 a.m. Like, so across four different time zones. So East Coast, West Coast, UK and New Zealand. So I usually go to the Pacific time one, which is 11 a.m. for me. And it's just an hour. So they start out with five minutes, they chat a little, they, everyone tells what their intentions are. You write for 50 minutes, you keep your camera on for accountability. And then at the end, they kind of just say, how'd that go? They check in with a few people. Um, so I've been doing that every day since uh, like six weeks ago. And that really is solely responsible for me plugging away on this play and getting it done. So I, I'm gonna try and continue that because 50 minutes isn't a huge commitment. And, and sometimes if I don't have a super busy day, like I might continue on, but just setting aside that 50 minutes is like, you know, that drop in the bucket theory that it kind of adds up. Yeah. <laughs> that is so cool. I've I have not heard of that before. So that's- um... Um, Yeah, I can grab you the link at the end if you want it. That's awesome. Yeah, that would be, that would be fantastic. Um, well, is there any anything else that you would like to share with our listeners about your work or where they can go to learn more about you? Um, you can go to my website, um, donnahoke.com. If you're a playwright, I have a blog that is full of tons of useful information. Um, I have an NPX New Play Exchange page. All my work is there. I have a reading coming up on April 30th with Clamour Theater, C-L-A-M-O-U-R theater, um, which will be reading Finding Neil Patrick Harris, which is the comedy that I mentioned. Um, I think that's it for now. And we should just mention that it's Donna, D-O-N-N-A-H-O-K-E, Hoke. So it's DonnaHoke.com. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Awesome. I know, truly, I think this is some of the most insightful, um, you know, when I, I, I love like a grassroots community type of mastermind, if you will. And so like, I'm like, this is stuff that can elevate anyone's game if they are really well, like- Well, this oh, is I the kind of stuff, I mean, I do a submission seminar for playwrights um, that I started with the Dramatist Guild at the La Jolla conference in 2015. So I've done that all over. I mean, I, I write this stuff on my blog, like I, for five years, I was the moderator of official playwrights at Facebook. So this is kind of what I do is share this information and, kind of try and help, you know, teach playwrights to fish sort of thing. And just, and being realistic about it as well. Like so there are so many places out there who are like willing to take your money and willing to say this can happen and that can happen. And, and you know, I mean, people should have dreams. I just believe in having realistic ones, <laughs> you know, or at least knowing what it would take to achieve, you know, if Broadway is your dream, then you need to be going to producing seminars and learning how to find investors and that sort of thing. Yeah, all dreams need a little bit of structure around them, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's right. Okay, so question number one. What is your favorite word? I don't know. I'm such a word lover in general that I, I, I don't even think I can answer that. Nothing comes to mind as a favorite word. I just love words. I mean, I make crossword puzzles. I love word puzzles. I love word games. I don't know. Do you have like one of your favorite or like a word you're really enjoying this week or maybe one you used in your draft that really was like fun for you? I don't. <laughs> I don't know. Like those, what is your favorite whatever questions? Unless it's an answer I have ahead of time. I just, I mean, no, I just love words in general. 
all of the words. Yeah, <laughs> all of the words. Um, do you have a favorite place? I, I love the theater district in Buffalo for so many reasons. Um, I got married on the Plaza of the Stars in the theater district by right. Buffalo's leading theater critic. Um, so, you know, that's kind of a happy place. Okay, last question. Is there a material object that is very dear to you or very meaningful or that, that you would hold as one of your prized possessions? Um, no, because I really don't um, value possessions in that way. Um, it, I mean, not that long ago, I went through my whole basement and got rid of so much, you know, quote unquote, sentimental stuff because I said, if my kids don't want it, what am I saving it for? Um, like my kids will tell you if they break something, I'm just kind of like, oh, <laughs> you know, like that's sad. Um, I think if there's something that, you know, has, has nostalgia attached to it, um, but it's, it's not irreplaceable. Like we have this Christmas clock that plays music that has just been part of Christmas for as long as I can remember. So for the past two years, like I've been collecting one from eBay, like I have a search so that all my kids can have one when they move out and take that memory with them. But it's not like, you know, it's, it's the sound of it that's sentimental, but the object itself is totally replaceable. Yeah. Thank you so much, Donna. And we got you. your website and um, we, we have that out there. And we're gonna okay, have let me see if I can grab that link. Oh, weird. It keeps disappearing every time I try and get it. But if you just look up, if you just Google um, the Writer's Hour, London Writer's Hour, you will find it. But I'll try and send the link to Gary as well, because for some reason it's not letting me grab it while we're yeah, on here. And we can add the links um, to that and to your one person show, um, hopefully in the episode notes when we put out the podcast, so people will be able to link to that as well. Well, we'll share that with all of our listeners, because I'm sure they will be intrigued after this. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was fun. Okay, so now Dana and I are going to dive into um, talking a little bit about the actual recording of Donna's play Survival Strategy. And with us, we have the director, Gary Lee Posey, um, who can chat with us a little bit about this piece. Um, so Gary, one of the things I love about this is the relevancy that, I mean, she really could have written this, you know, within the last, within the last 12 months. Um, did you let that influence how you had the actors approach that or were you trying to keep it neutral well you, you know it's uh the the whole idea of and she mentions it in the stage directions in the beginning of there's no no intimacy until the the, the hug moment you know and 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 you read it and you're like oh there is intimacy there is intimacy it's there but i love the idea that it gave you she in this instance, and I, you know, I, I'm not a person who follows a lot of stage directions as a director. Um, so, but in this instance, I was like, that's the depth I'm talking about. You know, you read something and on the surface level, you get an idea, but what, what's behind the idea? You know, and I think that gives, some, gives actors a little bit more to play with. Um, and especially in these short plays where, you know, sometimes a 10 minute play has a tendency to become very uh, sketch comedy or you know not fully developed and so to have to have the playwright provide just that little bit of depth in the beginning is really nice um, it makes the job a little bit easier but also gives us an another springboard to jump off of so yeah but I the the idea of of just needing like 
non-sexual intimacy uh, in this, the last, you know, 12 months has been something that uh, really resonated with me, so. It's definitely one of the more, I think, layered and nuanced plays that we have featured for sure. Um, I felt really uncomfortable with this play. I felt really uncomfortable with this play. Um, and I think that's good. It made me ask a lot of questions, which is good. I don't, um, I don't, I don't want an uncomfortable to come off having a negative connotation because mm-hmm. I think theater should like, right. Like stir. If I was just comfortable listening to it, that meant my expectations were met. It was all these things. Right. So I was definitely thrown off a little bit. It didn't, go where I was expected it to go. It made me ask a lot of questions, which I really, really value. Um, I did find it very interesting to hear that it was taken from like an advice column, um, which really, because this did feel very real. And so to hear that even further that it was grounded in reality was really, really a tribute to Donna to how it just really was grounded in all of that. Um, I think how did, um, how did, I know Scott, I don't really know Marcia very well. How did uh, they react to that? And did you see um, an arc through, cause I think you do a, a two or three passes of the play before we have the final edit. How did they kind of react to this? Um, you know, cause it is a pretty specific man woman relationship. Right. Dynamic. Yeah. Well, so, you know, when we were, casting we Marsha and Scott both did the rental uh last season and in 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 a very similar kind of manner you know uh how you know um one celebrates uh you know a day or whatever and so in that you know he was a rent a boyfriend for her birthday and they just had such a really good chemistry together uh in that reading and everything i thought you know this would be a really good way to start this season off with was to bring them two back into almost a very similar but even uh more um uh, structured kind of relationship and so and we talked about it and you know one of the things that i told them from the very beginning i said you are the bright spots in each other's day uh so uh in, in what might be a mundane job you guys you know make each other smile every day because you know of these little random visits that you have with each other um and then i also said uh you know i i think that you both of you have had the idea of being intimate with the other but you've never shared it with the other one and have no desire to share it with the other one because of the relationship that you have at work right so you know you have those two things uh kind of working against each other and so that when they get to the hug, for me, it was just, you know, it, I was like, I want that to be the one thing that kind of like brightens your life in this time, you know, that makes, and, and uh, so for them, they, they didn't have any difficulty with um, playing it that way. They, they, um, they were a little more playful. Oh, okay, it's an interesting story. The first time we read it, they were a little too playful. Right. And I'm like, it's a little too playful. I want it to be kind of boring, boring, a bad word, but like the beginning of the relationship to seem kind of, you know, scripted or boring or mundane. And so then we did it again. And I was like, okay, that was too much 
uh, is exactly what I asked for, but not what I wanted. <laughs> you know? And uh, so the third time we managed to get, you know, the, the balance, find the balance. But um, yeah, I just, you know, I, it's really, it's it's really a cool thing to be able to in ten minutes create a story that has a, a nice beginning, middle, and end to it, you know, with very um, layered relationships. Do you enjoy a challenge? Is your imagination stuck in overdrive? Is your attention span shorter than a Cubs World Series streak? Do you want your work read on Lights Up? then consider entering our one-page playwright competition, Propped. Incorporate three of the following props into a one-page play. A mannequin covered with confessions. A decapitated head in a duffel bag. A stage ghost light. Green cheese. An old-fashioned camera. Two telephones. A cloth face mask. And a ring light. Create a one-page play using any of the three items and submit it to Lights up at EnsembleTheaterOfChattanooga.com. If your piece is selected, we will read it at the end of one of our episodes. Now go forth and write. Next week on Lights Up, we'll feature the play The God Part by Dana Leslie Goldstein. Lights Up is a podcast produced by the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga. A 501c3 nonprofit independent theater company located in Southeast Tennessee. Lights Up is hosted by Christy Gallo and Dana Colagiovanni. Sound by Eric Red Wyatt. Graphics by Jamie Goodnight. And Casey Keelan as the associate producer. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, copied, or presented without the expressed written consent of the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga. The plays presented on this podcast are protected by all national and international copyright laws. If you are interested in producing any of the plays featured on Lights Up, contact us and we will get you in touch with the playwright. If you would like your play considered for a future episode or would like to be an actor or reader, please shoot us a message at lightsup at ensembletheatreofchattanooga.com. As a nonprofit, ETC relies on donations and the goodwill of patrons and supporters like you. If you would like to make a one-time donation to ETC, please visit our website for details. Or you can become a monthly subscriber on Patreon and get access to exclusive content. You can also support us by giving us a like and rating this podcast. Lights Up is hosted by Anchor, a Spotify company. The easiest way to make a podcast.